Would you be with us now as we open up your word and we learn more about you and we grow in our faith. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll be in verse 26. Each week we'll have a a different reading and we'll have uh, someone come and and read and and also share about their family Christmas traditions. Maybe it'll give you ideas. I think that's kind of fun. Wrap up baby Jesus, let that be the first one you open. I never thought about that. Uh, My family, we love birthdays. We, we, I mean, we really love birthdays. If you've ever been to our house during birthday season, um, we call it seasons in our house. It's not a birthday, it's like a season. And we have this birthday box, and we have all the birthday plates, and we have those awesome cone birthday hats that we all love to wear, and we have those little birthday things uh, that you, you know, blow, and it unravels, and it makes that horn sound. Uh, we have balloons and we have streamers. Uh, we also have those signs that you, you know, stretch out and it says happy birthday. We also take colored paper and we'll write messages to whoever's birthday it is. And we'll, we'll just put them all over the house and we'll kind of sometimes hide some of them. We'll even draw one for the dog so they're a part of the, Christ, or the birthday celebration. We love birthdays. We love just celebrating the birth, showing value, honoring the person uh, whose birthday it is. Um, but Christmas is a far greater birthday than anyone in my household and anyone here and, and anyone who has ever been born. In fact, Christmas is the greatest birth announcement uh, and birthday that has ever taken place. And that's what we're specifically going to look at today. And in fact, in our house, I was reminded of this because uh, we have one box for our birthdays. And I go to the attic, though, when it's Christmas. And I pulled like 12 plastic containers out of Christmas stuff, and then trees, and then we didn't even get down, for some reason, we have like Christmas dishes. Do you all have Christmas dishes? So that's a thing, huh? Uh, So we have Christmas dishes. Uh, You can see that wasn't my, um, that was not my choice to get those. Uh, But it's kind of interesting if you think about what we do. Before I was married, we would always go out and cut down trees. My wife is allergic, so we just use fake ones. But we'd go down, we'd cut down trees. Now they're dying and become fire hazards. We put them in our house and put water on them so it slows the decaying process. We, we wrap them in lights and trees and lights and, and uh, popcorn and ribbons, put stars on them. We put garland in our houses. We put, what, nativity sets on our mantles or wherever we place them. We decorate the outside of our house with lights we put nativity sets in the front yard or in us. We have an angel and we have some reindeer. We got those last, last year at some store and they're like 90% off. I tell you what, always buy your Christmas stuff after Christmas. And um, we didn't even unbox them. We just unboxed them this year, and, which makes them great for storing. And, uh, and then some, my neighbor, he's got... Some Disney character, I think, on his roof that blows up and, and does stuff. And I, know the, I don't think the Bensons are here, but their front yard will be full of Disney characters. And, I mean, it's fun, right? But why do we do that? Because it's the birth of Jesus. We love to celebrate the birth of Jesus. So we 
We don't just have one box, but we have lots of boxes to show the worth, the value. In fact, last night we came here, and many of you showed up, and we, we put garland all around the room, and we put uh, you know, the trees up and the lights up, and Nativity Set, I believe, is out there. And we love decorating. We do that because we love celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to do this season. We're going to look at Luke today. On Christmas Day, we're going to be in Matthew. And the two weeks in between, we're going to look at texts that you would not normally consider to be Christmas. Um, but we're going to look at some other uh, texts and just look at the birth of Jesus. Examine why did he come? What does that then mean for us? And I want to encourage you. Uh, Christmas falls on Sunday this year. And I had someone ask me, are we going to have service on Sunday? And, you know, it's like one of those questions, like, are they tricking me, or is this a trick? Like, what are they asking here? Is this really just, um, we're going to have service. Okay, we're going to do that, and I know that many of you, and uh, uh, this isn't to condemn here, but you're going to be tempted to not gather with us as the church. Some of you are going to say, well, we, we showed up on the Christmas Eve service, but I really want to encourage you to come and gather on Christmas morning. The whole purpose of this season is the birthday of Jesus Christ. There would be no church without Jesus. We would never gather if there wasn't Jesus Christ. And so on the day that we celebrate his birth, and it just happens it falls on Sunday, I just want to encourage you to come. And, and there's many reasons I could give, but I just want to give a few. One, if you're a parent, do so to shepherd your children that they understand the true meaning of Christmas. Before you open up all of your presents, bring them here that we would celebrate the gift of Jesus Christ. And then going home, saying, and in that joy of celebrating the gift of Jesus, celebrate the gifts that we give one another as a means of reminding ourselves that we have all been given one truly great gift. So do that for the purpose of shepherding your children. Number two, do it for yourself. Do it to remind yourself that in all the hustle and all the bustle and all the cells and all the things that we do, we are here for the purpose of celebrating Jesus Christ. And so to come for, for your soul, just for your growth, for, for you to be able to come and gather with your family in Christ and celebrate the birth of Jesus. And, and, and lastly, I want to encourage you to come for the purpose of the testimony to others. When people are asking you, what are you doing for Christmas? We're going to go gather with the church and celebrate the birth of Jesus. And then tell them whatever other things you're going to do. Let your neighbors know. Invite your neighbors. Hey, would you like to come to a Christmas Eve service or to a Christmas Day service? Let them know where you're coming. And when they see your car leave in the morning, they're going, where are they going? And they see you come back a couple hours later. And then when they ask you, where did you go? What did you do? Let them know. We went and we gathered with the church because we celebrate the birthday of Jesus Christ today. I just want to encourage you to come. We're not just trying to say because we want attendance and because we have to have everyone here. But come so because it's truly, it's who we are. We would not be Christians if it wasn't for Jesus Christ coming. And so I want to, just as you would show up for your own wife or your son's or your daughter's birthday, let us come and show up for the king's birthday. So I want to just encourage you with that. 
If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 1, verse 26. And today, we're going to look at the greatest birth. We're going to look at the birth announcement of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to stand. We stand here when we read God's Word for the purpose of honoring God, for the purpose of acknowledging that His Word is like no other. Chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let me pray. Oh God, we thank you for this text. It just shouts of your grace. It reveals to us your Son who has come and who he is and what he's going to accomplish And God, I pray that as we study this text today and we grow in our understanding that you would increase our joy in you, that you would refresh our souls in you, that we'd be reminded of the beauty and the joy and the greatness of your son Jesus and the fact that he has come to die on a cross, that we would have salvation and dwell with him forever in his kingdom. God, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you that Christmas announces that you have sent your son, that you have come near to us because we cannot come near to you. Father, be with us now as we look at this text. Give us wisdom by your Spirit. Increase our faith. Make us bold. And God, may we glorify you in all we say and do. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we begin, and we see that the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and we'll look at the greeting a little bit more later on, but the purpose we see in verse 31 is to give an announcement, and it's a birth announcement. He's come to announce that you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Mary is going to have a son. And so this son, though, we see is not going to be like any other son. He's going to be a king, and he's not going to be like any other king. He's going to be a king who reigns forever. And in verses 31 to 35, we're given a description of this son, of this king. And so that is the primary purpose of this text. And so we're going to look at this description step 
by step, point by point, because we want to understand who is this Jesus? Who is this one that comes, that the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a son. It's going to be like no other son, and you're going to conceive him like no other son has been conceived. And so we're going to look at the description of the king. After this, we'll look at the conception of the king. Then we'll look at the guarantee of the king. And then we'll look at the response to the king that Mary shows that we are to have. So number one, his name is Jesus. Jesus means God saves. Later in Luke 19, we'll see that Jesus comes, that he would seek and save the lost. In the beginning of the book of Matthew, we're told his name is Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Latin translation for the Greek word, for the Hebrew word Joshua. Um, And so Joshua, when we go to the Old Testament, we see He was a man, a great man, who led the people of God into the promised land. And he led them into the promised land, that they would dwell there, that they would overcome their enemies. Eventually there would be a temple where God would dwell, and they would experience God's dwelling, His presence, and they would experience God's rule. However, if you know the story of the Old Testament, because Israel was sinful, they didn't actually overcome all their enemies but rather they continued to struggle with their enemies. And eventually, because they were sinful, God allowed their enemies to come and overtake them and actually destroy them and bring them into captivity where they were then exiles and they were removed from the land. And now we have Jesus. And he comes as the greater Joshua. And he's going to bring us ultimately into a greater promised land, which if we were to go to the end of the book in Revelation, we would see a new heavens and new earth, where we will forever dwell in the presence of God. And in the new heavens and new earth, we're told there's no temple, because there's no specific location where God dwells, but God dwells in all of creation. And so this is what this Jesus has come to do. But in order to do so, he's come to defeat these enemies that he might save us. So who are these enemies? Well, in the first century, the Jews thought that it was the Romans. The Romans are the biggest problem. If we can overcome them, then surely we will once again become a powerful nation and we will experience God's rule and his presence. But that wasn't the biggest problem. For Jesus came to overcome a much greater enemy he came to overcome sin death and satan what we see is that we are born in sin we see that all the way back in the book of genesis when adam and eve sin because they have sinned now everyone who is born of adam is sinful and so we sin because we are born sinful and because we are born sinful we do not enjoy the presence of God we do not enjoy his rule in fact we rebel against his rule we want to seek our pleasures we want to do the very things that we want to we don't want to gather with churches we don't want to open we don't want to come here we want to be Christmas morning opening up all of our presents and after we've opened them a little bit of us will go I kind of wish I'd also gotten this or this or this And then about six months later, if even that long, we'll be tired of all of our presence and we'll want new things because we're continually dissatisfied and we have a desire for more and more and more. 
And so Jesus has come to save us from our sin, from the fact that we seek to satisfy ourselves rather than worship God. And it's because we are sinful, we deserve death. And not only death that we experience here on this earth, as we know everyone eventually does, but a second death, a death that's called eternal suffering in hell. And it's because we're sinful, it's because we deserve this second death that the Bible also says that we are followers of Satan. And I know that if you're kind of new to church or if you're kind of here checking out things for the first time, hearing that you're a follower of Satan, even if you don't know who Satan is, that probably doesn't sound like a good thing. You might be saying, I don't follow Satan. I don't know who this Satan person is. And he doesn't sound like a nice person. Um, He's not a nice person. Um, But what we see in God's word is that Satan did not follow God. He rebelled against God. He deceives others that they would not follow God. So just as Satan does not follow God and does not want to worship God, so we follow him that we also do not worship him. And we also do not want to follow him. And that's why Jesus has come. He has come that he would take our sins and go to the cross, and die the death that you and I should have received, and he would take our sins and bear the punishment for them, and that's by so doing, dying on the cross, he would also overcome Satan, defeat him, that we who believe in him would one day forever dwell in his kingdom. And we'll look at this more as we go through. But what we see is that Christmas is the celebration that Jesus has come to save us from death and give us eternal life. Just as Jesus has come and that he would be born to this world, he has come so that we who believe in him would be reborn, would be born again in him and become followers of Jesus. That's the first thing we see. See, his name is Jesus. He's come to save. Secondly, we see verse 32. He will be great. Now the word here, great, is megos. Now it means great, it means loud, it means very important, it means no equivalent. Now many people today, when they think of Jesus, and and you've heard of this before, they say, well, he's a good person, he has high morals, he sure was a nice guy, we don't really have anything wrong to say about him, but they do not believe that he was the son of God. And their descriptions of Jesus are inadequate. They fail to describe who Jesus actually is. They fail to actually understand who he is. One thing that the Bible does is it wants us to understand that Jesus is greater. And so actually, if you go to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews makes this argument that Jesus is greater. And it actually starts out in chapter 1, Jesus is the greatest revelation of God. And then it goes on, Jesus is greater than the angels. And then it goes on, Jesus is greater than Moses. And then it goes on, Jesus is greater than all the Levitical priests. And then it goes on, Jesus is greater than all the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus is greater than everything that we see in the Old Testament. In fact, when Jesus, when we come to the Gospels, what we see is that Jesus would regularly have these conversations with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were extremely religious people. And they thought, you know, if we just obey God enough, then we can surely usher in the kingdom of God. We'll win his favor. He'll bring the Messiah. And Israel will once again become a dominant nation in this world. 
And so Jesus comes, and he has these conversations with them, and they talk about the traditions and the things that they valued. Now, in the first century, some of those important things that could be valued by a Jew would be the temple, because that's the presence of God. Nothing is more holy, more sacred than the temple. That is where God meets man. One of the other things that was the most um, held tradition is Sabbath. The fact that the Sabbath was a holy day in which we rest. We don't do anything. In fact, the Pharisees came up with many, many, many rules to describe all the things they can't do. Because they weren't going to work at all. And they were going to make sure that they had a detailed list of all the things that they wouldn't do. Because the Sabbath was the day we rest and we worship God. But in conversations that Jesus has with the Pharisees, he says things like this. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Meaning I didn't come here that I have to observe the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. I rule over the Sabbath. And therefore, it's okay that his disciples were plucking grain on the Sabbath. Another time, he turns to the Pharisees, and they're having these questions and talking about things. And he says, something greater than the temple is here. Now, just imagine that. The temple represents the presence of God. There is nothing greater. To think of anything greater is pure blasphemy. And Jesus says, I am greater than the temple. The whole testimony of the Bible is Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Jesus is the greater Joshua. One more example. This is just a freebie for you. If you're a, a Sunday school teacher, um, here's just a little, little hint on how we do biblical interpretation. Uh, when we come to stories like David and Goliath, we come to this story and, and we see that David defeats Goliath and we go, wow, that's great. What's the application? What's the proper interpretation? Is that, well, you too, like David, can defeat your enemies. Is that the application? No, not a bit. Not at all. It doesn't have anything to do with you and I overcoming our enemies. The point is, is that a young David who had faith in God was able to overcome an enemy that was so great that all the people of Israel were scared of. And yet one day there's going to be a greater David who comes. And he's going to overcome a greater enemy. One that none of us have a chance to overcome in our own power and our strength, which is sin, death, and Satan. That's the interpretation. And when we go through the Bible, regularly we're looking at how it points to Jesus. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Christmas is a celebration that we now worship and experience the presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ. No longer do you come to a building like this. No longer do you have to do it only on certain days. But we have been saved that every day, wherever we are, we'd be worshiping God and we'd experience his presence in us because the spirit of Jesus dwells in us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Number, or the next one we see. It says he will be great and he will be called son of the most high. Now this is fun. I, I really like this one. The words most high refer to God. And you can just go throughout the Bible and see references to most high. And it refers to God. Like Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7. He's talking uh, to those who are about to persecute him and stone him. And he says, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. 
referring to God. One of my favorite examples is you can go to the Psalms, but Daniel, in the Old Testament, he comes to a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is the most high king on earth. He is the most powerful king. He has destroyed nation after nation after nation. And yet he has a dream, and he needs it to be interpreted. And so he brings Daniel before him. And Daniel stands before King Neb, who would say he's the most powerful person on the earth, who would consider himself to be God. And he says that his God most high will interpret this dream. And then later in Daniel, in chapter 434, at the um, Nebuchadnezzar himself, remember, most powerful person on earth. This is his testimony. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. So King Nebuchadnezzar, the most high king on earth, who would refer to himself as a god, says, no, no, there is only one most high, and it is Yahweh, it is the God of Israel. And so here in this description, when, when Luke is saying, you'll be the son of the most high, this isn't just a fun word. This isn't just a fun way to describe Jesus. This is extremely descriptive of exactly who Jesus is. He comes as the very Son of God, which we actually read at the end of verse 35. He will be holy, the Son of God. So we're going to pause here for a moment because we need to understand a truth that we see in Scripture. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is 100% man. He was born like you and me, he cried, he ate, he got tired, he got hungry, he suffered, and he died. Very things that you and I do, he does because he is human, just like you and me. The Bible also teaches that he's 100% God, meaning he possesses the full power of the Godhead, which we see as he um, raises the dead, heals the lepers, casts out demons, raises himself from the dead and overcomes sin, death, and Satan. And so um, what we see is he's 100% God, he's 100% man. And now here's your $5 word. You ready? It's called the hypostatic union. Now I encourage you, use that at lunch today. You know, you add salt and pepper and you'll be like did we just make a hypostatic union here or you make, you didn't just so you know you're, you're not going to make a hypostatic un- union with your lunch um and you you'll be pressed to use this word at lunch unless if you talk exactly about what we're talking about right now but it means that the personal union of jesus has two, that there's been a union of jesus of two natures and he's 100% man, he's 100% God. It's just a way of talking that he has these two natures. But it doesn't mean that there's like two persons trapped inside his body. He's not God, and he's not man. And they're like at war with one another. And like the God part is like, no, we need to go to the cross. And the man part is like, no, we need to go this way. He's not schizophrenic either. Like sometimes he has this godly mind and sometimes he just has this human mind. Like that's not what we have. And and it is a complicated topic. It's like when we begin talking about Trinity, it takes time to kind of unpack. And even after you've unpacked it, you're kind of just sitting there going, huh, 
okay? And it just takes time. As you learn it over and over, it becomes more digestible and you understand it. Um, But let me just give you a few reasons why this is so important that he comes 100% man and 100% God. Number one, we are born sinful. And because we are born sinful, we need forgiveness from God. The problem is we're not able to obtain this forgiveness. We're not able to actually atone for our sins to kind of pay the penalty for them. And so in the Old Testament, what we see happen is that they would bring like a goat or a bull or a lamb or pigeons at times, and they would sacrifice these animals as sin offerings in order to um, atone for the sin, in order to bring about forgiveness for the sin that has been committed. And what they do is they kind of place their, an- their hand on the animal as a sign of transferring the sin to the animal. They'd kill the animal, and the animal would die as a substitute for the person. But can an animal be a proper substitute for a person? Imagine you have a person, and he is condemned of a crime, of murder. So he's in a court, he's found guilty, and they're going to say, well, we're going to give him lethal injection. And at the last minute, right before they bring out the needle, someone comes and says, I have a goat. Let's do the goat instead. It'll be a proper substitute. And everyone's saying, they're going, well, how can a goat atone for the sin of, of the man? Like, that doesn't make sense. Like, It's not a proper substitute. And so just as in the Old Testament, the goats and the bulls and the lambs, they were used to show that one day we need a much greater sacrifice. We need one who can perfectly stand in our place. But the only way we can have a perfect substitute is if there's a perfect man. But the problem is is we're all born in Adam. And because we're all born in Adam, we're born sinful which is what we looked at as we're going through colossians and so therefore there is no substitute until christmas christmas is the fulfillment of the entire old testament sacrificial system where jesus comes that he would live and one day die on a cross and put to death all other sacrifices because there needs to be no other sacrifice because the one perfect substitute has come so that he would stand in our place. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what he's come to do. That's why he's 100% man, that he could be yours and my substitute. But secondly, there's also a problem. The punishment of our sin is the full wrath of God. Now, the problem is, is God's wrath, in order for you and I to, to appease the wrath of God for our sins, we must suffer for eternity. We've talked about this before. Um, If you were to hit me, there's probably not really much punishment that would happen there at all. If you were to go hit a police officer, you'd be thrown in jail maybe a couple days or so. If you were to hit the President of the United States, you'd be thrown in jail for a lot longer. So based upon the authority of the person, it's to the degree of the punishment that you would suffer. Well, when you offend the greatest and highest authority of all the earth, of all creation, the punishment is eternal. And so the problem is, is I can't actually satisfy God's wrath, which is why eternity is, uh, hell is for eternity. And so if I can't satisfy God's wrath even for me, I don't have a chance of helping you 
with God's wrath either. I can't even be a substitute or help out with my kids. Because we all, apart from grace, deserve the full punishment of God. And so we not only need a perfect substitute, but we need one who can actually drink the full cup of God's wrath for us. And that's why Jesus has come, 100% man and 100% God, that he, on the cross, would take your sin and my sin as the perfect representative. And you guys heard the word last week, and we've talked about this word a lot. And the word starts with a P. Do you remember what it is? Propitiation. I love that you guys actually know that. Um, It means wrath absorber. So Christ has come that he would absorb the wrath of God for us. And because he's 100% man, he can stand in our place. And because he's 100% God, he can absorb the full wrath of God for your sin, my sin, and all who will ever believe in him and fully atone for our sins as he dies on the cross and three days later rises victorious and in him we can then have new life. What we see here, the last one, is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you've accomplished. We have no hope of saving ourselves. Think about what this is telling us about salvation. There has to be a God man to come to earth that we can be saved. If that's true, then you and I, apart from this God-man, apart from this birth announcement, we have no hope of salvation. We have no hope of appeasing the wrath of God. That we can't climb a mountain and get to God's presence. We can't climb a ladder. We can't climb a rope. And no effort of our own do we even move the slightest inch closer to God. We need God to come near to us That's Christmas. Just as a drowning man is not going to be able to pull himself out of the water, he needs someone to jump in after him, to rescue him, to bring him out. So we needed someone to jump into this earth, to come into humanity to save us, that we could have forgiveness of sins. And that's what Christmas is. It's Jesus plunging into this earth, 100% man, 100% God, that he would save us. Christmas is the declaration that we cannot make our way to God. Christmas is the announcement that God has made his way to us. Christmas is the celebration of the grace of Jesus Christ. And because it's grace, we don't earn or pay it back. I I want to encourage you, parents, for a teaching moment on on Christmas. When you have your, your presents and your kids are about to open your presents... Are you going to ask them to go clean their room first? So, you know, once your room is clean, you can open this present. Once you go outside and pick up the pine cones, you can open this present. That's what we do in our house. My kids love pine cones. <laughs> it's like anarchy every time that comes about. Once you go straighten up the shoes by the front door, you can open this present. Now, you see what we're doing? You can earn all these presents, kids. And then after, after they've opened them and earned them, then I want you to say, well, didn't I quite earn them all the way? And so, uh, you have 20 bucks? I'd actually like you to pay me back a little bit for some of these presents. I mean, could you imagine, or, or what if your kids said that? 
In fact, I was at a church last week, and, and the pastor actually gave this illustration. It was really good. He said, imagine that your kids, after they opened their present, said, hey, mom, dad, this is amazing. This present, you went far beyond what you had to do. Let me pay you back. Let me go clean my room again. Let me, let me make dinner. In fact, mom, let's go break open the piggy bank. I just want to give you back the money. In fact, this is amazing. Or what if they said, I, I don't want to even touch it. I don't even want to touch it. It is so great. We're just going to put it up here on this little mantle, and we'll just look at it, and I won't ever play with it because it's too precious. Is that what you want? Is that why we give gifts? Is that how we want the kids to respond? Use this as a teaching moment with your kids on, on Sunday on Christmas Day. Give them their gifts and let it be known. Just as God has freely given to us, we want you to have these gifts. We expect no return at all. And the only thing we expect is that you enjoy it. We want you to enjoy it much because the reason God has sent his son Jesus is that we would enjoy him. Not that we would keep him at arm's distance and say, wow, that's a really nice gift over there. But that we would enjoy him. We would embrace him. We would love him. We would become like him. So parents, I encourage you, Sunday, Christmas Day, teach your kids about the grace of God and how they open the presents and how they celebrate the presents and how they enjoy the presents and how they in no way need to pay you back for them. Next, we see he will possess the throne of David. Steph read this earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 7 during the worship time. And we read that David wants to build God a house, King David in the Old Testament. And God says, no, no, I'm not going to have you build me a house, but I'm actually going to build you a house. And I'm going to give you a son. And this son will reign forever. His kingdom will know no end. And then as we go throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets, into the exile of the people of God, we're continually looking Where is this king? And we're reminded, one day I will send forth my servant David. One day from the root of David will come forth a greater David. And we're regularly reminded, a king is coming. A king is coming. In the first century, they were looking, where is this king? Where is this king? We're looking for the king. And so when the angel says to Mary, he will possess the throne of David. This is the anticipation that has been building for over a thousand years since David. And in fact, even before that, all the way back to Genesis 49, we were told one day from the tribe of Judah, the scepter will not depart. So we've been looking for this king to come from Judah, more specifically from the line of David for the entire length of the Old Testament. Anticipation is huge. They're looking for him. And then on Christmas, he comes. That's the joy. The everything since creation has been leading towards the birth of Jesus. Christmas is a celebration that God keeps his promises. Do you know that? It is a celebration. Genesis 3.15, one day I will send the seed of a woman who will crush the head of the serpent. We're looking for the serpent crusher. And at the birth of Jesus, he has come. Next, we see he will reign forever over the people of God. And his kingdom will know no end. 
Look at verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom, there will be no end. There's at least three things we see. Number one, Jesus will always be the king. We don't have four years of Jesus or eight years if we're lucky. We get him forever. That's a good thing. There's no, there's no going to be recount. I tell you, doesn't, you know what? This is just silly things. There's no recount. And then we see the house of Jacob. Now that refers to Israel. But what we see as we go through the New Testament, that it really refers ultimately to the church, the full people of God, Jew and Greek, joined in one in Jesus Christ. We will forever be his people, that we will enjoy his presence and his rule. And what do we see? And the kingdom will never be destroyed, meaning never will we be taken into captivity. Never will we be taken into exile. And if you go to Revelation 21 and 22, we're given this amazing description of this kingdom. And do you remember what it says about the gates? The gates are closed, right? No, the gates are open. The gates are always open. Do you know why the gates are open? There's no enemies. There's no enemies. The gates are always open for the people to come in and go out because there is no enemy that will come and God's people will never be taken into exile because in Jesus we are held secure. That's, that's the birth announcement that, that Mary received. Now I just want you to think, that's Christmas right there. When we gather around the tree... And you say, well, we're celebrating the birthday of Jesus. Help your kids understand this. He's the king. He saves us from our sins, from death, from Satan. He's great. He's greater than everything we've ever seen. He's what the entire Old Testament has been looking towards. And he will reign forever. And if we believe in him, we will also live with him forever. But there seems to be a problem. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, she's not doubting, but she's like, this is strange. I took biology. Like, I know how people are made. There's a man and there's a woman. We can go into more details later if you need that. But that's how the, uh, a child is made. And she rightly understands the angel saying, you're going to have this baby now. Like, she rightly understands that. She's not married yet. She's legally bound to Joseph in this betrothal, but she's, she's not married yet. And so she's like, you're saying I'm going to have a baby, but I haven't even been married. How is this going to happen? And so we come to the conception of the king, and this point's not nearly as long as the last point, if you're wondering if they're all the same. So verse 35, the angel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Okay. Sounds good, right? Like, would that satisfy you? <laughs> I'd be like, wait, what? Like, how does that work? The same spirit that we read about in Genesis 1 that hovers over the waters is now going to hover over the womb of Mary and bring about life. The glory of God that would come and dwell upon the temple, that nobody could enter in the temple, that power is now going to enter into Mary, and there's going to be life inside of her. This is not some Greek mythology where like Hercules is made because God, the Zeus comes down and has sex with a mortal. This is not what's taking place here. Nowhere do we have even the most remote inclination of anything like that in the Bible. What we have is a purely holy conception where God is simply going to enter into Mary and bring about life 
It's a miracle is what we have. It's the miraculous conception of baby Jesus. We're not given many more details at all. Simply that the power of God will come upon her. And again, let's be reminded that this teaches us that salvation is solely by grace. Not only can we only be saved by this God-man, but even the means in which this God-man comes about is only going to be by a work of God. There is nothing about Christmas that shouts about man or woman's effort. It is all about the work of Jesus Christ and of God. And then notice the result of this divine conception. Verse 35, we read, Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus is holy. Now think about that. What other person in the Old Testament has been born holy? There hasn't been. (laughs) It's not a trick question. There hasn't been. There's never been a holy person that was born. Adam was made sinless, but then because he became sinful, every person after him has become full of sin. So how is it now that Jesus is going to be holy, sinless? Well, the Roman Catholic Church wrongly says that it's because Mary herself was free from sin. Oh. Well, if that's the case, and that means Mary deserved to have God come to her because she was the only holy person who have ever existed. And that because of her, she can then, or Jesus will be holy. That is nowhere, nowhere taught in Scripture. Nowhere taught in Scripture. Now maybe you have been taught, well, Jesus is holy because sin only comes through the man. Have you ever heard of that? I was taught that. In fact, I remember looking for that verse at one point, saying, where does it say that the sin is only passed through Adam? That verse also does not exist. It's not because Jesus only came from Mary that, oh, well, man is the sinful person. Sorry, guys, that's us. We're just the ones who are born in sin. Women are only sinful because they're a product of man. Like, that's not the case at all. But rather, what we have here is that the reason Jesus will be holy and sinless is because the power of God will enter into Mary and through this birth, he will prevent the sin of Adam from coming into this baby. It's a miraculous birth. And what we have here, and if you remember, in Colossians, we talked about two heads of humanity. Do you remember that? There's Adam. He represents all of humanity. Everyone in Adam is born sinful. Everyone deserves death. So what we need is another head of humanity, one who is born sinless. And so in Jesus Christ, now we have a new head of humanity, one who is holy, and that if we believe in him, we're transferred from the kingdom of Adam, of darkness, into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Christmas is the birth of a new humanity in Jesus Christ. You see that? The birth of Jesus has come so we'd no longer be born, so that we'd no longer be under the curse of Adam, but that we'd be reborn in the grace of God. Next, we have the guarantee of the king. Verse 36, Gabriel gives Mary an example of God doing the impossible in order to provide the faith, in order to establish what he has said. He says, Elizabeth, your much older relative, is six months pregnant. And in fact, in chapter 1, we're told she's way beyond childbearing years. So we don't know how old she is, but she is obviously beyond the age that women can have babies. And so, she's now six months pregnant. Now why? 
isn't important that she is six months pregnant. Because there's no woman who is six months pregnant that doesn't show that she is pregnant, right? She's six months pregnant. Not one month, not one week. Mary can easily go to Elizabeth. If there's no bump, then there's no prophecy, right? It's not true. But she is pregnant. And she can go and she does go. And she sees and they rejoice. You have a baby. And because of this, she knows for sure that the promises of God are true. Now, I want you to think about this. God regularly chooses to do impossible things, doesn't he? I mean, that's what he says at the beginning. The reason he does this is verse 37. For nothing will be impossible for God. God loves to use what we consider problems or obstacles as a means of revealing his extraordinary grace. Just think about it. He chose Abraham at 75 years of age, and he said, you're going to have a baby. Then when Sarah is 90 and he's 100, that's when they have the baby. Why did he wait so long? It's obviously a work of God. When Moses took Israel out of Egypt by the amazing ten plagues that God brought upon them, he then is the worst navigator in the world, right? He takes them to a dead end in the Red Sea. That's the worst place you can go. They're trapped. Egyptians are coming. The Israelites rightly say, did you bring us out here so we could die? God regularly brings about obstacles so that we see it's all by His grace. And God then parts the Red Sea. The people of God make their way through and the Egyptians are destroyed. What's the verdict? God's grace saves. It's all about the power of God. I want to encourage you. When we celebrate Christmas, we're looking at how God does the impossible. Christmas is a reminder that everything is possible for God. Christmas is a reminder that, that whatever we're going through, whatever our situation is, and I know for many people, Christmas is a very difficult time. We're without family, we, we struggle with loss, and, and there's many heartaches and pains that are brought up. And we wonder, how can I make it through this season? I want to encourage you. Yes, we want to be your family, and we want to come alongside you and encourage you, but there is one who can perfectly encourage you. There is one who gives perfect joy, and it is Jesus Christ, and there is nothing impossible for him to do. By your faith in him, he loves to dwell within you, his spirit to fill you with his joy, and we want to be a part of that with you, but I want you to know, whatever situation you're facing, whether it's at work, whether it's at home life with your children, with a spouse, whether it's with your kids, whether uh, it's in your neighborhood, whatever impossible situation it looks like, whether it's finances and you're saying, I don't know how we're actually going to pay for this or meet this. There is nothing impossible for God. Now the world will regularly bring about obstacles that will try to deny that. But the truth of God, and as we come to it every day, is a reminder of how God overcomes the impossible. And so as you come to Christmas, as you celebrate Remind yourself of the power of God. Remind yourself, Jesus Christ comes as the God-man. Not because I did something. Not because Mary did something. Not because we deserved it. Not because we earned it. Not because we merited it. But simply by the grace of God through the power of God. That is how our salvation comes about. And so what is to be our response? The last section, the response to the king. Verse 38, Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She responds in faith. 
Now remember, what does it mean? A, a terrible thing you can tell someone is just have faith and then don't unpack that. Don't ever say that because I think most people don't understand that. So if you say just have faith, unpack what that means. And do you remember how we do that? It means trusting in the promises of God. That's what we're talking about. Have faith. Trust in the promises of God. And that's what Mary is doing. She is looking at all the Old Testament prophecies, the things that uh, the angel has told her about in this announcement. And she's seeing it come true. She's looking at the fact that now her, her relative, Elizabeth, is now pregnant, and she believes based upon the promises of God, the truth of who God is and what he has done. So let me ask you, but is her response just simply a result of how extraordinary she was? Like when you read this, do you simply go, I could never have done that. Like that's crazy. Like if God had said, you're going to have a baby, and it's not going to be through normal means, would you have just simply gone, well, as I am the servant of the Lord. Is this because Mary was extraordinary? Now think about this. When you read the Bible, do you think, I couldn't have done what David did just because he was so extraordinary. I couldn't have done what Peter did or what Paul did. It's just because he was so extraordinary. Are the people that God uses in the Bible just better than us? More extraordinary than us? More gifted than us? I mean, if, if we're honest, I think many times we think that. I think if we're honest, we think, he just couldn't do that with me. But let's, let's just peel back and go back to the greeting now. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So we have Nazareth, which is a nobody town filled with a bunch of nobodies. It is. Remember when Philip is told in the Gospel of John, Jesus comes from Nazareth. Does anything good from Nazareth come? It is a nobody town filled with nobodies. And what type of status does a single young girl have in the first century? Absolutely none. So we have a nobody place filled with nobodies, and we come to the nobody of nobodies in this place, really. And God says, I want to use you. I want to use you in order to do this. And notice the greeting that Gabriel gives her. Verse 28, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And what I just think is what neat, she had no idea how, how real the Lord is with you phrase really meant. Like, the Lord is really with you. Like, you're carrying him. Like, I wonder how long it just took to kind of sink in. Like, he's really with you, Mary. But, oh, favored one, Lord is with you. Then he says in verse 30, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. The word favor is the word grace. And the fact that she has found favor doesn't mean that she merited it. It's the same way that, that Noah found favor with God, that Moses found favor with God. These people in the Old Testament found favor with God. It was not that they deserved it, but that God poured favor on them. You found favor means God has given favor to you, not because of who you are, but because he's so gracious. And in fact, it's because God has poured grace upon Mary, she's able to respond in faith. The fact that he has chosen Mary doesn't move to the exalting of Mary at all. It moves to the fact that God's grace can use any person 
at all. No matter who you are, no matter what reputation you have, no matter what social status you have, God's grace can come upon you and use you greatly. And when we look at the phrase, the Lord is with you, all throughout the Old Testament, like the Lord is with Gideon. What did Gideon do? He brought about Israelite victory with 300 soldiers over an innumerable Midianite army. Regularly we say, we see that those who God is with do extraordinary things. I want to remind you that by faith in Jesus, what does the end of Matthew 28 say? And the Lord is with you always to the very end of the age. God dwells with every single person who believes in him. Not because we've deserved it, but simply by grace. And he does so that he would use you and me in an extraordinary way. Not about making a name for ourselves, but about exalting the name of Jesus Christ. Christmas is the announcement that God gives his grace free. That's what we see. I mean, all throughout this is God's grace. And so I want to encourage you, if you've not received the gift of Jesus Christ, if you've not believed in Jesus, if you've not believed that Jesus is the God-man who has come to save us from our sins, to save us from death, to save us from Satan, that we'd be forgiven, adopted into his family, and brought into eternity. I, I just, I encourage you to believe in him today. If you have questions, I would love to talk to you. We have others who would love to talk to you and just walk you through more of the story of God. If you have any questions, that is what we want to do. We desire more than anything that you would know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you have trusted in Jesus, let me just give um, a few things I want to urge you in. Parents, help your, help your children understand the gift of Jesus. Un- unwrap this power this grace that we find in Jesus. Help your kids see how remarkable it truly is. As you open those presents and you get all excited around Christmas Day, just stop and say, isn't this amazing that we give gifts? Isn't this just incredible? And just remember, all of these gifts are because we love one another. And they all point to the fact that God has given us a much greater gift in Jesus Christ. Shepherd your children. I want to encourage you, let your words be full of truth about Christmas. Tell people about the joy you have in Jesus. There is innumerable amount of opportunities you and I are going to have in this next month. People are going to say, what are you going to do for Christmas? Oh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. You want to come? But, but tell them. Don't hide it. What are you doing on Christmas Eve? Well, well, we're going to gather with some friends and eat candy. I mean, yeah, we'll probably do that here, right? But tell them why. We're going to gather with our family, the church. We're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Let your words be full of praise. As your kids talk to you, why do we have a tree? Because we take something that's directed like an arrow that's pointed up towards the heavens, and we place it in our house that we reminded that God came down to us. Let your words just be full of the grace and truth of Christmas. Number three. Remember, Christmas clearly reveals that salvation is by grace alone. Remind yourself that. We did not deserve Jesus to come. It is all by grace. It is all by grace. Let your friends know this. Let your kids know this. Let your spouse know this. Don't take for granted that we even as a church know this. Let's remind ourselves. Let's remind ourselves on Christmas Eve, on every day that we see each other. Isn't Christmas just good? 
Isn't Christmas fun that Jesus came and died for us by grace? Isn't that incredible? Let's just remind ourselves that. Don't just take for granted. He's a Christian. He knows. Merry Christmas. But unpack that for every one of us, that we just be regularly faced with the grace of God. And lastly, I encourage you, gather with the church. Gather with us each of these weeks as we come. Use whatever opportunity you have to gather your unbelieving neighbors or coworkers and bring them here. Christmas Eve is a, is a fairly easy place to bring unbelievers to. It's fairly easy. Most people don't have a problem stepping out on Christmas Eve or Easter. That's another one. So I encourage, let's use that to our advantage. Let's just use another way to hopefully expose people to the gospel that they would have a chance of hearing about this Jesus Christ, the King, the God-man who came to save us. Christmas, it's incredible. It's the fact that Jesus, the God-man, the King, has come to earth because we can't come to him to die on a cross because we can't die and satisfy God's wrath and that he has done it for us so that you and I could live with him forever. That's Christmas and that's why he's come. Let's pray. Father, we just just thank you for Christmas. God, help us to be in awe of your grace. Help us to, God, just to be humbled by your grace. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son. God, we acknowledge that in no way can we come to you. We acknowledge that in no way do we deserve your son, did we earn your son, but that you have graciously sent him. And God, you have sent him that you would save us. And Lord, we know that when you save us, you dwell with us, that we would use you, that you would use us to tell others that you have come. Lord, I pray, help us to be bold in this Christmas season. Help us to be bold in every season. Help us to be emboldened by the fact that we have been saved by grace, that we would share the greatest birth announcement this world has ever known. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. In your name, amen. Um, Connectivity issues, so I don't know if there was any questions, but I didn't have them come through, and so um, I'm trying to kind of skip that. Uh, I want to encourage you to grab the book, uh, The Christmas Uncut. I want to encourage you to grab that. Um, In fact, the first chapter is about Mary, um, so I encourage you read that and just see um, more about who Mary is and really the shockingness of the fact that she was used and what it was like for her. Um, So I encourage you to grab this book just to remind yourself of Christmas. And then when you get done reading it, either keep it or or give it to someone else that could then use it. Um, I just want to encourage you, let's celebrate Christmas by truly celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Let me pray as the, the team will lead us in the closing song. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you that you have come to us because we cannot come to you. We thank you for grace because we cannot earn. We thank you that you have been our substitute because there is no other substitute. We thank you that you were able to fully atone for our sins, to bring about forgiveness because we cannot do that. God, we thank you that everything about salvation is all about your grace. And God, may we not doubt you May we be reminded of the fact that you can do the impossible, that there is nothing impossible for you, for you are God, and you've created all things, and you sustain all things. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. In your name, amen.
As our closing song, we're just going to sing that chorus that we just sang, that Emmanuel has come to us, just as a reminder and just a praise and a thanks to God that he did indeed come.